There were a couple of themes that I heard about this case over and over. One involved biker activity in Lockhart in the 1970s and 1980s. The possibility that the bombing was drug-related or retaliation in that regard. Local biker clubs were absolutely known to make, distribute, and use bombs. But before we get into that, let's just take a minute to look at bombings themselves. Bombings are very often grievance crimes, and by that I mean that the bomber has a specific grievance that they are addressing with the bomb. Here are some examples. From October 22nd to November 1st in 2018, Democratic Party politicians and other critics of Donald Trump began getting what would eventually be one of 16 packages containing pipe bombs. Among the recipients, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Maxine Waters, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, John Brennan, James Clapper, George Soros, Tom Steyer, Eric Holder, Robert De Niro, and CNN. The FBI determined that they were improvised explosive devices, otherwise known as IEDs, although each of them lacked a trigger mechanism. But they did all have to be detonated in a controlled setting. Clearly, this perpetrator had a political grievance. I found an example out of Florida from 1992. A panhandle man named Clifford Lewin put a bomb outside the Washington County Sheriff's Office in Chipley, Florida, and it exploded, almost tearing a deputy's leg off. His reasoning was that he thought courthouse employees were cheating him out of the inheritance that he believed was due him after his mother passed away. Lewin was an electrician's helper by trade. Another electrician, who was also a mechanic, was the Mad Bomber, a.k.a. George Metesky. He played the long game, not unlike Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Both of them terrorized entire cities for over a decade. Metesky's career as a bomber spanned the 1940s and 50s. He planted explosive devices in New York libraries, offices, theaters, and places like Grand Central Terminal, Radio City Music Hall, and the RCA building. His 33 bombs left 15 victims in their wake. And it all stemmed from a grievance that he had about an old workplace injury at Con Edison. That one's an interesting case. It was essentially the birthplace of the current-day offender profile that's often used to try to help find suspects. And for that, we can thank James A. Brussel, the then-Deputy Commissioner of the New York State Department of Mental Hygiene. And before you think it's mostly we classless Americans prone to this type of thing, here we have an example out of Australia. From a newser story dated April 3, 2019, quote, A couple honked at a female driver that they thought might hit their vehicle in a McDonald's drive-thru in Australia on February 22nd. The next day, the windows of their Ford Ranger pickup were smashed. Less than two weeks later, a bomb placed beneath the truck exploded. It was grievance-fueled violence sparked by a benign interaction, Detective Superintendent Michael McLean says. According to police, Ryan Sharp began a six-week campaign of online harassment, intimidation, and death threats after his girlfriend tried to file a police report about the couple's initial toot in Warawong. Someone does something that offends someone else, and that first someone might not be as mentally stable or maybe just doesn't possess the average disposition that would, I don't know, let's say not lend itself to bombing someone just because you got your feelings hurt. That's exactly what we see with bombings over and over. Grievance leading to violent, destructive actions. 
In a December 1985 article in the South Florida Sun Sentinel titled Police Report Pipe Bombings Rising in the Country, Broward County officials noted, Unlike other forms of violence that might result in the heat of the argument, pipe bombs are used by people who take the time to gather the materials, to make them and then place them near the intended victim. Sergeant Carl Hall of Pembroke Pines Police said, People who go to the trouble of making and placing pipe bombs are either sending a message or meaning to harm the intended victim. I don't think there's any question that a pipe bomb filled with metal and nails like the one in the shop and go incident isn't just to send a message. It's meant to harm someone. Whether that someone is a random stranger or there's a specific target remains a question. Although in this case, it is unlikely that the perpetrator could target one specific person by attaching a pipe bomb like this to an air machine. How would he know who would be up there at any given time trying to fill up their tires? It's highly unlikely someone targeted Paul himself, or anyone specific, if you take that into account. Here's James Fitzgerald, a former FBI profiler on Fox News, discussing a bombing case. But boy, I'll tell you, when the, the more I'm hearing today about this guy, he so fits the description of a classic serial bomber or serial sniper. Look, Cho at Virginia Tech, he sent off videotapes to a, to a news network of explaining why he did what he did. When we went inside uh, Kaczynski's cabin in Montana in 1996, there were long missives, journals, autobiographies explaining every part of his bombs and how he did it and why he did it. Um, a guy in, uh, in, in uh, Utah and in Illinois in 2006, he wrote letters to chiefs of police why he set off two different bombs, explaining how they were constructed. Eric Rudolph did the same thing with his Army of God letters. So it's almost like these guys are following a script one after another, but it has to do with deep-rooted psychological issues that they don't know how to manifest them in other ways. They had to kill people. This case just doesn't lend itself to the same profile of someone like, say, Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, who perpetrated a series of attacks over more than a decade using mail bombs to target academics and business executives. Our perpetrator tied a pipe bomb, yes, absolutely, a bomb meant to injure, to an air pump in a very small town outside of a small convenience store on Christmas Day, a day that was less likely to be busy than others. Also, there was no follow-up telltale rash of related bombings in the months or the years afterward. When he was interviewed by the statesman about the Austin bombings, Mr. Fitzgerald said, quote, Employing a detonating device that doesn't target any particular person would indicate a dangerous capriciousness and callousness. The bomber wants to strike out at some perceived wrong, and anyone who gets hurt is of no consequence to him. And therein lies the rub in this case. Police uncovered no perceived wrong in their investigation here, whether to a shop-and-go store employee or anyone else. Or did they? Another of the possible motivations associated with the crime involved the air machine itself. According to the owner, his machines in Lockhart and Apopka had been taking a serious hit in the months leading up to this bombing. He said that he had learned from a detective that there were two men targeting his machines, one who lived in Lockhart and one who lived in Apopka, which is a nearby town. In his words, they had been terrorizing his business for six months. To me, they're mean enough to do something like that, he said. By the end of February, two months after the bombing, Detective Andy Guidas, who had been investigating the machine vandalism before the bombing, had not been contacted by investigators 
on the Shop and Go case. I'm sure they're aware of it, he told reporters. The two alleged vandals had been seen in a blue car and a blue van, and that might have been what piqued detectives' interests because they did have witnesses mentioning a big blue car at the Shop and Go the day of the bombing. For his part, the machine owner had had enough. I'm at my wit's end, he said. I'm going broke here. He told the Orlando Sentinel reporter about how he had borrowed $60,000 to start the company in April of 1984, and in less than a year he had to refinance the loan because thieves kept stealing his profits from the coin boxes. Not to mention that every time one was broken into, he had to pay $60 to repair it. And he'd also been spending money modifying the boxes with extra metal and bars in an effort to make them less easy to break into. He told police that the machine at the Lockhart Shop and Go had been vandalized three times in the month leading up to the bombing, and he characterized it as one of his better-paying machines. When he was asked how he learned about the bombing, he said his wife heard about it on TV and woke him up to tell him. He immediately called the sheriff's department and told them he owned the machine. And then he spent the whole morning driving around to all of his other machines, checking for more bombs. About a week later, he finally met with Detective Lou Ronca and told the investigator about his vandalism troubles. He said the detective told him that he doubted that the machine was the target of the bombing, but they were still investigating the case. One of the criminal psychologists interviewed about the bomber had speculated about something similar regarding the air pump. Maybe he was angry because he didn't want to pay a quarter for air. The suspect, he further theorized, could have thought, who the hell does somebody think they are to make me pay 25 cents for air? Chief Gemple addressed the series of break-ins and vandalism of the air pumps. The chief said that they had been looking into the vandalism before the explosion occurred and were trying to determine if any members of this group could have been involved in the bombing that injured Paul. We looked into that possibility, he said, but we found no indication that they were involved in the bombing. But that lead can't be completely eliminated. That's the problem. So far, nothing can be eliminated. They said the same thing about the sketch made with the details given by the child. While they didn't appear to give her statement much credence, again, they still would not completely eliminate it. And that's because they had nothing of real value to go on. Even the biker gang thing. And I heard that a few times when speaking with people, believe me. I had one lady tell me that she had heard it was, quote, a gang thing meant for a rival. She said, I think after all these years, it's best to let sleeping dogs lie. You have to realize the culprits are in their 60s by now. These were not nice people and they have offspring. This woman, bless her heart, she is friendly with my grandmother and she just wanted to warn me that I shouldn't be nosing around for my own safety. I told her not to worry. I couldn't do this podcast if I got freaked out every time I reported on a case where someone warned me that I should back off. It happens a lot. But you have to ask yourselves in what scenario involving the facts as we know them, does biker gang involvement make any sense? Yes, there were absolutely biker gangs in the Lockhart and Orlando area at the time. I'm pretty sure there still is. But does that relate to this convenience store bombing? I got no indication when speaking to multiple store employees that any of them had any running issues with any biker gangs. Then I started digging into Orlando biker gangs during that time period and I fell down a rabbit hole that lasted a few days. Just typing in bomb and Lockhart left me a little shocked to see how many articles came up. 
there was a bombing in March of 1984, and that's only eight months before the Shop and Go bombing, and that was at Orange Avenue Gym in Orlando. The gym was closed at the time of the bombing, and there were no injuries reported. Later in 1991, at a hearing in another case, a firearms agent testified that the president of the Warlock Biker Gang was a suspect in that case. This is a biker who had unknowingly recruited an undercover firearms agent into the biker club and eventually had him head up their South Florida chapter. Yeah, that was a dicey time in Florida biker history. ATF saw that we could infiltrate by using long-term undercover uh, operations the groups such as the Warlocks. In 1990, ATF Special Agent Stephen Martin went undercover as a biker. His mission, codenamed Easy Rider, was to befriend John Spike Ingrao, the Warlocks' then national president. The national president of the Warlocks, Spike, was an avid bodybuilder and at one time a Mr. Southeast USA. I, too, was an avid bodybuilder. Therefore, a perfect end. I said, do you know anybody who can get me some firearms? Spike says, I can hook you up with uh, explosives, and I might have a source to hook you up with meth, and I might have a way to hook you up with marijuana. He then asked me if I had four other friends of mine that I rode with. The four guys he recruited were all cops. Uh, so it was the first all undercover cop biker chapter in biker club history. Spike called Martin to a meeting and told him he needed him to do something for the club. The assignment, to blow up the South Florida clubhouse of the Warlock's arch rivals, the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. Spike had one of the Minnesota chapter members bring down a large pipe bomb to give to me to go ahead and blow the clubhouse up. That audio came from a YouTube video titled The Warlock's Biker Gang of Orlando, Florida. I have put the link to the full video in the show notes and you should watch it because it's fascinating. But I should note that the gym that I mentioned that got bombed, there were ties to that gym and the Warlocks. It's the place where that president of the Warlocks had been befriended by the undercover agent. I have not been able to uncover any similar ties with biker gangs and the shop and go. Now the ATF is the agency that has investigated a lot of the local crimes suspected of biker gang involvement and they had a role in the shop-and-go bombing as well. So, on Paul Jewell's case, there was an investigation brought before the grand jury, which was headed by agents of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, who had initially said that they would share their findings with the Orange County Sheriff's Office and the state fire marshal if they found anything concrete on the shop-and-go bombing. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like they ever did. If I knew something, I would have told him two years ago. I would have turned my own mother in for blowing up a kid. This was a quote from John Kirk, a 48-year-old cabinet maker in Lockhart, who was one of three people summoned multiple times in front of a grand jury over a course of 18 months in 1986 and 1987. A quote in the Orlando Sentinel on January 28th of 1987, written by Dan Tracy, indicates that there may have been a lack of communication between the state and federal agencies. Sheriff spokesman Randy Means said detectives are still looking into the bombing, but did not know that the U.S. Attorney's Office had assembled a federal grand jury. In that same article, I found what amounted to the only information that the Sheriff's Department ever released on the matter. Quote, Sheriff's detectives decided that Jewel was not the intended victim. They said he was hurt by a random act of violence 
and should not fear another attack. The detectives also learned from their interviews that a man with dark, unkempt, medium-length hair had been loitering near the pump on Christmas Day. He was wearing dirty clothes and had several days' growth of a beard. Given that this grand jury occurred some three years after the initial incident, and at the time, the perpetrator details that they're giving out involves the medium-length hair, it appears that they had ruled out that Charles Manson-like sketch. Over the years, around Christmas time and the anniversary of the bombing, local newspapers often circled back to the tragedy to update their readers. In 2003, the Orlando Sentinel contacted Mike Hedgerfield, who was then still the head of Orlando's ATF division office. He said his office, quote, conducted an exhaustive inquiry that failed to find a suspect or a motive. He reckoned that it was a random act of violence. Nineteen years after the incident, and they were apparently no further along than they were months after, when police were quoted in the paper as saying, Our main problem is that we can't come up with a motive. We're floundering. We don't know what direction to go in. After they tracked down every possible lead, gangs, drug dealers, overheard conversations, it all came back with nothing. Nothing fruitful out of the grand jury or the exhaustive lab analysis by the ATF. None of it got anyone any closer to the truth. They hypnotized multiple witnesses. Rewards were offered. Nothing. And it seems almost inconceivable given the specificity of this crime. The explosive device took time to prepare and a measure of deafness to place without being caught yet it was placed in an only moderately trafficked area in a tiny town. What did the perpetrator hope to achieve? What it was, it was Christmas. Uh-huh. I remember that distinctly. And I have, uh, my two sons were very young at that time. And that we were going over to my father's house, okay? Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember when I pulled up to that intersection where... Uh, I, think it's, I don't even know if it's a shop and go anymore. I don't even know what it is. I don't, don't look at it. Yeah. But I, I distinctly remember something hanging from the air hose. Okay. Okay. And I also distinctly remember a car being very close to park there. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, didn't think anything about it. You know, went to my dad's house and we had a great Christmas and so on and so forth and then when we came home that night later that night uh, of course there was police all over the place right you know mm-hmm. and really didn't know what happened either at that time until the next morning or maybe even the morning after that okay mm-hmm. and uh you know we understand that uh this thing was rigged to be a bomb mm-hmm. is what we were told and uh they were look, basically looking for witnesses, and I just said, you know what? I saw something. I'm going to come forward. Right. And um, I contacted uh, Orlando police, and they wanted to see me, like, right away. And I think I went down there, Jenny, like, the very next day or okay. the day after that. Mm-hmm. And um, I interviewed with the, uh, several detectives. And uh, during that interview, they asked me if, if it would be okay to hypnotize me. Oh, wow. And I volunteered. I said, yes, it would be fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, 
it was interesting that after I was hypnotized, I seemed to remember more of a, how can I say, a more true realistically of what I saw there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it definitely was, uh, uh, they asked me questions like, what did I see? You know, how did I come upon it? You know, basically the things I'm telling you right now. Mm-hmm. And the two main things that I told them was I distinctly remember seeing a bag hooked around the, uh, the air pump. And the other thing was a car. So they they dove into, according to them, uh, deeper into what kind of bag did I see. And uh, you remember the old, I don't know if they still have them, but the two looped Christmas bags you would get to carry your presents in around the mall? Right. That's what it was. And it was a Jordan Marsh uh, bag. Oh, okay. And... Uh, because, uh, you know, Jordan Mars had their own little logo and neat thing, you know, graphics on their bags, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the color of it, too. And then the car, uh, I described something like a Chevy Nova with the slope back. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's about as far as it went. Uh, after that, after I left there, they did not contact me again. I never heard anything more. Uh, from OPD on it, and uh, the next thing I know, I went to, I think it was a Christmas parade, like the next year, near the poor kid that had his legs blown off was like in the Christmas parade. Right, he was, yeah. Yeah, and I felt really, really bad about that, you Mm. know, and and I know at this time, and you know, as you brought forward to me, they still have not solved that particular case. So, and, and and believe me, I've thought about it over the years of, you know, who would do something like that, you know, and yeah. why would they do something like that, you it's, know? It and, is. It's, uh, a, it's a strange sometimes case. Sometimes it's difficult to get an answer on that, you know. For Lockhart being such a small town, it shocked me because yeah. it's pre-internet. It's not like someone could look up how to make a bomb, you know? It's yeah, not, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, and the fact that, that that intersection is traveled a lot, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And the fact that the only thing there at that time was that store. And, of course, the, the uh, uh, school across the street, right. you know? But then again, you think of 441s right there, you know, and yeah. there'd be somebody going through and say, hey, let's plant this right here, see you later. Yeah. You know. You know they did have, you know, quite a few people that had been in there, been in, gone to the shop and go, even seen, like you, seen the package. Now, you said you you felt that the package was hanging. Is that right? It wasn't, yes. like, sitting on anything. No, it was, it was definitely, you know, the way that the air pumps have that, uh, uh, how can I say? It, it's where the hose hangs down. You know, people never wrap it around that thing. Right. You go to air pump, but it, it was there. That's where it was. So and it, was, and it was around that 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 coupler, so to speak, hanging oh. there. Oh, okay. So it was around yeah. the place where you would you would wrap your. You normally put the hose. Where normally you would wrap that hose around. Okay. That's where the bag was hanging. Oh, that's yep. interesting. Now. That's exactly- Tell me which were you were you coming from the direction on um, I guess it was Rose Avenue where you were facing the store or were you coming I on Bay? Yeah, I was facing the store. I live I live up towards Bear Lake. Okay, so it was so on your right up, as you yeah, approached the stop right. sign. Yeah. All right. So that yeah. tells me what side sort of it was on. And you didn't see a, a person that you described, just the car? No, no. I, I saw the bag, and like I said, I remember that car. There was a car. 
it was it was kind of weird where it was you know it wasn't parked like in front of the store like somebody was going to go in the store you where know was it, it parked? was parked like several feet away from the where the air pump was and it was facing the school facing the school several yeah. feet away like um like parallel with rose avenue that you were driving yeah there you go yeah okay all right yeah kind of like that so yeah and it hmm. was maybe it was maybe 10 20 yards away from that pump maybe something like that which but is it, it, which is weird because if you're doing something to your tires, your, your car you usually try to pull it as close, yeah, right? You would say, okay, I'm right by the pump, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's strange. You know, and and it, and it could be, you know, it could be something, you know, I I would love to know how it ignited and exploded. Well, That's I did. Always crossed my mind. You know, you I know? did get. I'll tell you what I know. I did get the um, the FBI report on it, and I got the yeah. images of the pieces that they collected. It had some sort of trigger, and what it was is they the perpetrator attached monofilament, so it was kind of clear to something uh-huh. in the box, and then they they attached that to the hose. So when he touched the hose, it was uh-huh. it was it was triggered by his action of grabbing the hose. Interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So wow. that's what's what you know, sort of how it happened. Yeah. 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 And and were you wow. when you drove through that day? Um, you said you after that you never spoke with police. You didn't uh, no, anything after, like that. After, after <clears throat> I interviewed with them the one time, that was it. And they not, hypnotized after, you at that time. Yeah, at that time. Yeah. Did you give? So you didn't give any suspect um, sketches. No, I, I I didn't see anybody. You just described the car, uh, okay? If I re, if I remember, gosh, if I remember, I think they wanted me to draw the car or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to just recollect, and like I said, <laughs> I, I described like a, a Chevy Nova with that with the with the slanted back. You know. Yeah. Did That's you remember what the, color it was? It was blue. A blue Chevy it was, Nova. It was a light blue color. Light blue Chevy. Yep. And do you remember what time you told them that you had been through that area? Uh, it was probably close to noon time. Okay. Something like that. All right. Uh, uh, like I said, you know, my two boys had their Christmas here at the house, and then we went to their grandpa's house. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's it's interesting. How much I remember here. It is. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You know, I'm interested. What was the? Um, I've never been obviously hypnotized. What was that process yeah. like? Uh, they brought a guy in, and um, if I recall, he had a watch, and he asked me to just stare into the watch, stare in the watch. And uh, to be honest with you, I thought I was only there for uh, a couple minutes. And I guess it was like an hour or two hours. Wow. I didn't realize it was that long. And hmm. uh, it was kind of funny. Uh, uh, I never told anybody this, but it was almost like when he was asking me questions, like he was asking me questions and he was in this cave and it was echoing to me. Hmm. You know, it was kind of weird, you know. And, that is and interesting. I even, and I didn't even know if I was talking or not. <laughs> That is fascinating. I've never, yeah. I mean, what as, a... As I have never been hypnotized before, ever, and ever since, never been hypnotized. And they know? didn't give you any medication before? It was just strictly no, a man, just relaxing? Straight on, straight on down, and like I said, uh, uh, two detectives interviewed me and asked me a couple of questions, and, uh, and then the very next thing they said, uh, we have so-and-so here, would you mind if he hypnotized you? Right. And I said, fine, good, you know, do what you need to do. 
Yeah. Was it in a regular, um, an office setting or was it, were you like laying down on a couch or something? No, no, just, I I was sitting in a chair. I remember that distinctly. And he was sitting in a chair across from me and I'm pretty sure it was a watch, Danny. I'm pretty Mm. sure it was. Yeah. That is fascinating. Well, you can say you were hypnotized. Yeah, it was really weird. I mean, it was really, really weird. (laughs) Well, I mean, you were able to give the information. It wasn't weird because I didn't know what I was doing, you know. (laughs) Now, before they hypnotized you, were you able to give um, that information about the car or anything, or was it after? Well, I I told them that, that, uh, you know, I remember seeing a bag there, and I said I remember seeing a, a car parked in an unusual place. Right. And they tried to drill it down, and I was like, you know, I had a tough time with that, you know, what I'm trying to explain to you what it is. And I remember uh, telling them that it definitely was like a Christmas shopping bag with the two loops, you know, the two rope loops that mm-hmm. hold the, you know, you carry the bag with. And I said, and it had some kind of design on that. And like I said, after I came out of hypnosis, I said, you know what, that was a Jordan Marsh bag, you know, because it was like a white color. Hmm. Well, I can tell you they did they did narrow it down to a bag with loops on it. I think they in they the note. Did? Oh my yeah, God, I was right. You were absolutely <laughs> right. Yes, you were. It was like a, almost like a gift bag. And now the picture. What they did is they they found they in one of the notes. Now I, I don't know if I have all the notes because the FBI came in too, so I may not have everybody's notes. Oh, but wow. Um, wow. they they had it looks the 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 bag that they recovered that looks like the pieces you know that they found was a brownish, a light brown, you know, like paper bag color with like red squigglies lines going through it. It's like when you would get a department store, you know, like their type of bag, bag. holiday bag. Now, I, the reason why I thought maybe you had done some other sketches is because there is, there are a couple sketches that have initials on the corner, A.M., and oh I know, and I thought, what <laughs> well, if they made him do some sketches while he was under? Because there's a side uh, view of a male, and then there's a side of uh, a view of a male and a car um, in the trunk, and then there's the vehicle picture, and they all have initials AM on them. And gosh, then there was, yes, yeah. gosh, you know, I don't know. The, I mean, I, 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 to tell you, I don't know if I did that or not. It's amazing how your your mind remembers things like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, when you're involved with something like that. And, and I'll be very honest with you. Ever since that happened, I always wondered what happened. You know? Yeah. Because uh, like I said, if you saw the kid like the next year or whatever it was in the Christmas parade, I mean, my heart broke. I mean, mm. my God, you know? It was just like, gosh darn, you know, who would do that? In 2008, Paul Jewell told Orlando Sentinel writer Jim Lustner about one of his most common nightmares, being near a gas station air pump when a huge snake, like an anaconda, attacks, looming over him and then biting his face. And then he'll wake up. Much like the snake, questions are still a looming presence over this case. Stay tuned.